Good morning. There's a reason for that. You'll see in a minute or later. I'm going to read uh, from my Bible while on the overhead will be Psalm 2, but you could read along on the overhead as I read it from my Bible, which is NIV. Would you stand, please, though, for the reading of God's Word? Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off all their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Please be seated. If you would turn in your Bibles, if you wouldn't mind, to Psalm 2, you might have a little different version, but I'm sure quite similar. As we look at Psalm 2. When you look at the beginning of Psalm 2, as I read it there, the first couple of verses, it's like reading the newspaper today. It's like reading the morning news or going on the internet and seeing the morning news on cable, whatever. What's happening today is what what happened 3,000 years ago and what will happen into the future is the rejection and the hatred of God in general by the world, the hatred of God's word, the hatred of his, his son, the anointed one, the hatred of God's people, just a rejection and a a view of God which is animosity towards God. And we see that more and more, right, as we see the news, especially in these last short years, it seems. Two things we want to remember in this message, two simple things of Psalm 2, if we could put it in two very brief sentences, sort of like this. One, the world has hated God, rejected God. I don't mean every single person. I don't mean everybody's grandmother or uncle always hated God. But the prince and power of the air, the sons of disobedience, the world system hates God, despises God, wants to get rid of God, wants to get rid of his people, get rid of his word. And that's going to continue. And number two, in the truth that is right beside it in the psalm, is this. God will always be king. He's always been king, he is king, and he will always remain sovereign Lord over all heaven and earth. And we can say amen to that. No matter what the world tries to do to rid themselves of this, they would say, tyrannical God. 
Psalm 2 is attributed to David. It's in Acts chapter 4, verse 25. We actually read that David is the author. And we want to keep in mind as we read this kind of a dualism in this psalm. It's, a, it's about a coronation of a king. It, there's a high king and there's an under king, or what we would call a vassal king. And this is about 3,000 years ago David wrote this. But even going back to Babylonian times, this idea of how a king was coronated in those days. But also we're going to see an earthly and a spiritual blend at the same time. And if you've read the Bible for any a period of time as a young Christian, you realize when you read the Old Testament, especially prophecies, you're going to find a dualism, right? There's, a, there's, a, there's a, usually a fulfillment at that time to some extent, although not always in great detail, but usually and always these prophecies are picturing a future fulfillment still to be done or to be completed fully. Some has already transpired with the coming of Christ, some to come into the future. So this psalm is really a, a dualistic picture of, of a then king and maybe specifically David with Solomon or others in the Davidic line and into the future of Christ as king and God the Father as, the, uh, as equal to Christ and Christ equal to his father as king, king of all. So this is about a coronation of a king. And again, the king here is an under king, a ruler of an empire and nations. Uh, yet they were regarded as having the same authority. So this king might be related to the, uh, un- the next king to come. They were like co-regent or king emeritus, we might say. But equal authority. And we find with Christ, as he's anointed the high king, he has the same power and the same nature as the father. So it's also proof of his deity, uh, we'll see as well. Much to the uh, dismay of other groups who tried to claim these passages point to a creation of Christ like Jehovah's Witnesses, you'll see here how they're in error. <clears throat> so we want to go forward then and see how this psalm is broken down. It's very nicely broken into four parts. The first part, if you read verses 1 through 3 with me, is simply this. The, the truth is this, the nations are in rebellion against God and against his anointed one. Amen? That's pretty obvious today. Let's read one through three again. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth, the presidents, the prime ministers, the governments take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The ancient Near East, when it happened, a coronation of a king, was often the time for an occasion of a revolt. A new king was coming. It was time before he was established that there would be a great revolt. The newly appointed vassal king or the under king was in a state of transition, but the attack was always seen as an attack on the high king, who was king before as well, because he was, he was appointing the under king. So any attack on Christ the anointed in the time of his ministry, he said was an attack on his father as well. And didn't he say that? Whoever hates me hates the one who sent me. Whoever honors me honors the one who sent me. The great, the great king. And Jerusalem is his city. So it says here, why do they conspire? Or in other words, how dare they? Verse 1 says, how dare they conspire? against the great king and his anointed king. Their gathering together does not put God in fear. No matter what they try to plan and contrive together, it would not have an effect. And this has been going on since the fall of Adam and Eve. 
Cain, seeking to avoid the punishment that he was given by the Lord to be a vagabond and travel from town or place to place, tried to circumvent the punishment by building a city. Because in cities there is a, a dependence, so to speak. Cities have everything. We don't, in a, in a sense, Cain didn't need God if he could build a city. He could find everything he needed in the city. <clears throat> the great warrior and uh, ruler Nimrod, you, ever, you remember him from the book of Genesis. Nimrod was quite a uh, famous character and a very influential man of the, uh, of the times of, in the book of Genesis from the beginning. Nimrod was a great hunter and a warrior before the Lord. He was also a great politician. In a sense, he was almost the first great earthly king of men. Um, it said that in Genesis that Nimrod helped founded the countries, and these are the greatest empires of the old world, and even we know through the times of Israel. He founded the kingdoms of Babylon and became Babylonian. He founded the kingdoms of Assyria. He began the cities of Nineveh. He began these great cities which became the emblem of the power of men. Nimrod was a mighty hunter. Tradition says he was also a rebel. And when they built the, uh, the Tower of Babel, these ziggurats, they call them, you've seen pictures, they look like a pyramid that goes up seven levels usually, because men worship in the heights and they want to be as high as God or to throw God down like Satan tried to tear God down from his heaven. It is said that Nimrod went up to the top of the tower and he took an arrow, this great hunter, and he shot it up into heaven as if to kill the Lord himself. That's just a, a story. But the point is the mindset was always there with mankind is to avoid, to reject, to replace God. And this is nothing new in David's day, and it's not new in our day. We have things that the United Nations, which started to try to make one world system, if they could, to get all men to agree on all things, to even today to make one currency, to make one world government. Whatever it's going to take for men to try to rebel against God and to replace God, it's trying to be done. And we'll meet with no success. The rebellion is against God and his anointed. Again, Jesus connected himself with his father constantly. At the coronation, the new king would pledge his loyalty to the covenant and to the king. And we see this in our Lord Jesus. He was anointed with holy oil. Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit. He, he became the anointed of the Lord in 1 Samuel, it tells us. The prophets in the Old Testament looked for a day when Israel, Judah, would be ruled by a Davidic king, an eternal king with the world and the nations subject to him. But the world says this in verse 3, Let us break their bonds. Let us take their chains off. Let us get their fetters away. Isn't that how our world sees Christians today in the, the Bible? Get rid of these chains. If we could just get rid of Christians, if we could just get rid of this God of the Bible... It's all, all the trouble of the world is because of religions, especially Christianity. If we could just do away, we would be free. We could break these chains and throw off their fetters. But you know why the world wants their chains broken and their fetters off? So they can sin as they wish and do as they please and to reject the will and the order of God. Sadly, this is how unbelievers often see the Lord. He's hard, he's cruel, he's selfish. We don't want anything to do with that. We don't want his yoke. And that was the story which Mike had read before. The parable of the ten miners. It's one of my favorite passages because it makes it so simple, the two truths. 
The world rejects God, but God will always be king. And Jesus showed in this parable who he was. It was a picture of himself. He comes from a distant land to become king. He's, he's ordained and confirmed as king. He goes back to his father. And the, those who are servants said this, We don't want this man to be our king. What did Israel say to Christ? We don't want him to be king. They went to Pilate and said, we don't want him to be king. The Jewish leader said, we don't want him to be king. We want nothing to do with him. Kill him. Away with him. But the next verse says this. I love this. This is one of my favorite parts. So the, we do not want this man to be king. The next verse says, he was made king, however. <laughs> I love that. He was made king, however. Too bad. He was made king. The Christ was made king. And this is the way it is today, sadly. He was made king. Whether Pilate, the Romans, the Jewish leaders conspired together to break away, it was to no avail. It's about rebellion against the king. And that's all our, all our life is about from the fall, is about chances to rebel or to submit. That's, all, that's our life, right? Do we submit or do we rebel? And that's for all. And one man made a, a, a tremendous statement, I thought, was, and I, I can't claim it for myself, it's his, but I'll, I'm, I forget who it was, but I'll, I'm just saying it's not mine. He said this, the goal of rebellion, now remember, any rebellion, whether you're an unbeliever, a believer, whether you're a little toddler, whether you're someone at work, the goal of rebellion is about one thing, lordship. Who's going to be ruler? Right? That's what a toddler says when they rebel. That's what we say in a marriage. That's what we say to God. We say, who's going to be Lord? I want to be Lord. That's what it's about. Rebellion is always about lordship. That's why the world rebels against God. We will not have this man to be king. I, I want his yokes gone. We don't want these chains and if we can just all get all together and get rid of Christianity, we'll be that much better. We'll be rid of these chains. And we'll be free to do as we wish. And the God, the, the small God, the prince and power of the air, is aiming at this. His cause. But they were to submit to the king of kings. They were required to allegiance to him. You cannot submit to God without submitting to his Messiah. In Acts 4.27, it tells us that. It, it quotes Psalm 2 and talks about the world rejecting him. Number two, we see in verses 4 through 6, God's sovereign rule in heaven over the nations. His sovereign rule. Now, by the way, the picture here, if you can see, is a picture. The question today in the message is, whose throne? Whose throne are we talking about here? In Psalm 2, whose throne is it? Is it God's throne or the nation's throne? Is it your throne, my throne? Whose throne is it today? Who's, who's got the right to the throne over you? The Lord God. Right? And as believers sometimes say, that's my life. God is on the throne of my life. But sometimes I want to go over here and I want to kind of... Excuse me. I want to kind of rule with God. I want to be a co-regent. I want to have God. God is my co-pilot. You heard all that. Sometimes we want not the Lord to share his throne with us. And it's not wise to share the throne with the Lord. 
In the book of Revelation, it doesn't, it talks, everyone says, what does the book of Revelation mean? I can tell you one thing in the book of Revelation. 39 times the word throne is mentioned. Throne. The book of Revelation is about a throne. And what comes from a throne? Power, sovereignty, might, war and plan and victory. And the son, the lamb sits with the father on the same throne. You ever notice that in Revelation? The throne of the lamb and of God. Not two. The one throne, meaning equality in all authority. So we see in verses 4 through 6, let me read that then. Speaking of thrones, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger, terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. You see the difference in the persons here? The father, the high king, talking about his son. He's installed his son, his king, on his holy hill. The peoples of the earth have rage. God rebukes. Jesus said, fill up the measure of your father's sins. God sends strong delusions that they believe a lie, those who hate him. So the one enthroned in heaven does these things. He laughs at them. That sounds cruel to some people. The personality of God is shown powerfully in Psalm 2, isn't it? He laughs at them. He scoffs at them. He rebukes them and he terrifies them in his wrath. And some say, is God without emotion? God, some, some people see God as almost a stone figure on a throne or in a chair, and he has no emotion. But God has emotion. And we are made in his image, and that's why we have emotion. But the difference with God is he does not act out of... In, he's always in control of his emotion. He doesn't act in tirades or out of control, thank God. As we sometimes act out of our emotions in, in sin. But God never acts with his emotions to produce sin. We read about Christ making cords and whips and drove out the animals from the outer court of the temple where they were making money and, and, uh, and doing things illegally according to the custom by overcharging people and, and uh, stealing from them basically through coin exchange. And Jesus made a... Can you picture that? Our Lord Jesus, the loving, kind Jesus, makes a cord uh, for a whip... And, and whips these, I don't know if he whipped animals or not, I don't think so, but still. And they ran, and all the money was flying all over the place. People scurrying to find the money. And this is our Lord. Zeal for thine house has consumed me. He fulfilled prophecy saying that. We have emotion, he has emotion, but he's always in control of his emotions. He's unfazed in the threat of the unification of the people. Men tried to make technologies. We tried to change genes. We tried to make the greatest uh, military ships we can. And they're fascinating and they're impressive. There's no doubt. Satellite war to come, cyberspace. It's all true. These are technologies that are progressing. But still, God is head of all and is unfazed by men's attempts. He that spoke the world with one word can simply end man at any moment. And he shall end him at one moment, at his return. He tolerates no opposition. There's no competition from mere men. Can the clay say to the potter, why hast thou made me thus? No. 
He says, I have installed my king on Zion, whether they like it or not. I have installed my king on Zion. What was Zion? Again, a dual fulfillment, so to speak. Zion was representative of an earthly place at the time, Jerusalem and the area around Jerusalem and not even Israel at large, but mainly Jerusalem, the city of the great king. But Zion was the spiritual entity as well. Zion is God talking about not just an earthly Jerusalem, but a heavenly to come. Zion is, a, is the beautiful spiritual picture of God's kingdom to come fully. So God is saying, I've installed my king on Zion. Zion is like God's heaven, his kingdom, where his king reigns in power. First comes to an earthly but always shown in a greater eternal spiritual image, Zion. Matter of fact, Psalm 132, I'll just, uh, I was going to read a portion for that for you, where he talks about, stay with Psalm 2 is, and God says, Here I will make a horn grow for David. A horn was representative of a king, a power. This is about Christ. Here I will make a horn grow. This is Zion. And I'll set for David and set up a lamp for my anointed one. I will clothe his enemies with shame, but the crown on his head will be resplendent. That's a picture of Christ coming again. You remember when Jesus said to, on the road to Emmaus, he said, he talked to them all about the scriptures which referred to him, starting with the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. You remember that? And the Psalms were full of messianic prophecies. And Christ was alluding to that. He said, the Psalms, they speak of me. Psalm 2 was one of the main ones. Psalm 2 is used so many times in the New Testament. One of the most used Psalms in the New Testament. They speak of him. He is the horn. He is the king. He is the anointed one. It's, it's so beautiful how it fits together. Zion is the place where he will dwell. And he's already anointed and he's already installed on the holy hill with God. All right, number th- the third part of our lesson is verse 7 through 9. This is now the anointed one speaking. Now, this is the Christ, the under king, speaking out now that he's been coronated and he's, he's fully installed as king. And this happened at his first coming. He says this, this is a future. He said, I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Some versions say today I have begotten thee. Well, I'll say that, why, that, what that means or what has become to mean in a minute. He says, ask of me, I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession, for you will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. <clears throat> the Davidic king now. He speaks. We see the relationship of the king to the high king confirmed now at the coronation. The anointed son, the anointed one, responds to the, uh, the interest of the king. Jesus came for one reason only, basically. What? To do the will of my father, a faithful underking who served the high king fully in every way, without failure. My father loves me because I always do his will. I always obey his commands. The perfect underking. 
And of course we know he's declared as the son. We just got done studying the book of Hebrews in Sunday school. One thing we, we found out was that Christ is the son of God, that he is equal. He's superior to angels. He's superior to Moses. He's superior to all things, right? He is with the Father. All that thine, all is mine and all is thine. I and the Father are one. He said it over and over. And it's interesting that the Jehovah's Witnesses curiously use that verse where in verse um, 7 as a, one of their proof, proof texts against the deity of Christ. When in actuality it's saying the very truth that he's the deity, that he is God, he's, he's, the Son is deity. He says here, he said to me, you are my son, today I have become your father. Some versions say, today I have begotten thee, right? So the Jehovah's Witnesses say, see, he was born. Jesus wasn't existing before time. He was an angel, that's what they believe. Or he was the Michael, uh, Michael the archangel who was sort of transitioned into a Christ-type figure. This is their belief, to a degree. And they say, see, this proves that Jesus was created. This proves that Jesus was born. I, I can't believe, sadly, the ignorance of just learning a little bit about what a king, the coronation of a king, was about. Because if they just did a little bit of study, they would have found out that in Babylonian culture and in culture of David's time, what would happen is when the king, when the under king and the new king was, was coronated, the high king or the father to the son the king, who was the son of the father in most cases, he would say, today you have become my son. You're my king. You're the king. You see, it's not talking about created at birth. It's talking about a new relationship to, to divulge to the world to say, today I am your father. We are one. You are king. Totally opposite of what Jehovah's Witness is trying to say. You are my king, and I am your father. And Jesus referred to him all the time, my father. I and my father are one. This is why they sought to stone him, because he, making himself, making God his father, made himself equal to God. They knew that. That's what he was claiming. Why was he crucified? Why was Jesus put on the cross? The high priest said, I command you and I adjure you by the living God. If you be the son of God, tell me. He said, I am the name of God, I am, and you shall see the Son of Man coming in clouds. A direct quotation from the book of Daniel. That's why the priest rent his clothes. Because Jesus claimed and, and said and declared, I am the Son. I am this anointed one of Psalm 2. I am he of whom it speaks. And they rejected it. They hated it. They wanted nothing to do with him. And that's why at the end of the story, the end of the parable which, which Mike was reading, it says in verse 19, and I'm going back to Luke, But for those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. That's Jesus talking. Many like to think of Jesus as harmless, uh, easygoing, no problem, nice guy. There's a place for that. But you hear what Jesus says? He said he's the king. And when he comes back, he says, and for those that didn't want me to be king, oh, let's just say, bygones be bygones. Nope. This is Jesus saying, and when he returns, he's going to say this, for those who didn't want me to be king, bring them here in front of me. And the angels will bring them before him, and he'll say, slay them in front of me. Wow. 
That's a different side we don't often think about. Because we think of Jesus as the Lamb, which he is. But he's also, in his second coming, which we just read about and Rob was writing about and reading about too, King of Kings is coming on a white horse with power and destruction. And that's the point too, I just want to bring up this. That God's anointing this king is a promise to bring stability, even if it means the use of force. It's funny because this is what was brought in Sunday school all about violence in the Old Testament. But there's violence in the New Testament too, because God is one. God has told the ruler and has given the ruler of the world, Christ his son, he has authorized this Davidic king to extend his kingdom unto all the ends of the earth. He's not just the king of Israel or the king of Christians, but God is the king of all the nations. Communist nation, Muslim nation, all the world and all men and women and children that live in it. He is the God of the... That's why in the Old Testament, when you read about the minor prophets, the major prophets, and even Psalms, you read about, after especially the Babylon exile, they come back and the promises are about him extending his kingdom to to all the isles of the earth come to him. And all the rulers of the earth grab the the hem of of a Jew saying, let us go to the house of the Lord. Let us worship God because God's people shall come from every nation every tongue and tribe, and they are even to this day. But also at the same time, he rules over all nations, all oceans, all shores, all peoples, whether they like it or not, whether they know it or not. He is ruler. And Christ is the king of all the earth and all the heavens and all the universe. And sometimes it takes, and when he comes, sadly... To bring stability, it means the use of force. Have you heard the imprecatory psalms? Many of you have heard of the imprecatory psalms. It tells us in the Bible that he will smash the opposition. He will crush the rebels. He said in Luke 19, slay them in front of me. In Revelation 19:15, listen to some of these passages. This is John talking about Christ coming. In the second, in his second coming. I saw heaven standing open, and there was before me a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. Who could that be? With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He's the king of all. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is, he is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. We know who it is now. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Now listen to this. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword, which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. That's from Psalm 2, by the way. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Treads the winepress, crushes the grapes until they turned into wine. With the fury of the wrath of God on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the one they hate, who's coming back without, with fury, with violence. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He's a scepter. He holds a scepter, it tells us, uh, back to Psalm 2. 
You will rule them with an iron scepter. Iron meant strong. In verse 9, in Psalm 2, you will dash them to pieces like pottery. Dash, you know what Jesus said in another verse that's quite striking? He talks about himself and he says, about himself, he says, whoever is offended at me. Isn't that funny how the word offended is used so much today? I'm offended. Jesus said, whoever is offended because of me. He says, whoever stumbles is really the word. It's where we get the word scandal from. He says, whoever is stumbling because of me. He says, I will, he will be broken into pieces. The person who is offended by Christ will be broken. He says this, but whoever on whom the stone falls, this is himself, whoever on whom the stone falls will be ground into powder. This this is Jesus talking. Quite a serious thing to take and to dwell on. He's a scepter, he's a king. One of the things that helped me to understand back in 1992, I started to come under... Teachers, I was brought up uh, in, in Baptist theology, which did not believe a lot of Reformed doctrines, doctrines of grace, which is to me really just the Bible. There's a lot of verses which went, you know, we were taught to go right over our head. You know, Jacob, I have loved, uh, Esau, I hated, you know, over their head. Vessels of mercy, vessels of wrath, over their head. So, finally, a man named R.C. Sproul, I heard a teaching one day by this man who was fascinating. I've never heard somebody like this. And I'll never forget one of the, 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 past, the, the statement that he made that clung to me and shaped my life after that, turned my life in a different direction scripturally. He said, God is not a democracy. He is a monarchy. Wow, did that change my thinking. Because in America and around the world, in the Western Hemisphere, we're all de- Democrats. We're democratic. We're democracy. What it means is we vote. We don't like something, we vote. We want something, we vote. God, you don't vote with God. That's why the theology of much of America, much of the Western Hemisphere, believes so much in, not in the sovereignty of God, but in the free will of men, overcoming and dominating all things. Because surely God is on our level. We're, we're democracies. God will listen if we want to vote against him. He's a king. And kings do what kings want. Kings take who they want. They, they do what they wish. They plan. They execute as they desire. That's what kings do. And that's what God is. He's a king. And that's scary to me a lot of times. He's not obligated to me. He's a king of his own like. And I can't stop this king. No one can stop him. And Christ says, we were talking about today, someone read, my kingdom is not of this world. Pilate said, so you are a king. Yeah, he's a king. King of all. Not just king of a little town called Jerusalem, but the king of all. He's not a democracy. He's a monarchy. If people could just get that through their minds. And now if he's a king, what does that mean when you interpret the scripture now? What does it do for you when you understand that he's a sovereign king who does as he wishes and has a right and cannot be stopped anyway? Lastly, verses 10 through 12. And this is the, the, the wise uh, admonition given to the world because of these truths. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flirt at a moment. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. 
Really, this verse starts with, therefore, it's, it really means, and now, and now what should you do? And now, kings, what should you do? The gospel is brought to the nations, and the anointed one now gives words of wisdom and warning to the rulers. He says, show discernment, O kings. Take warning, you who judge the earth. Assess your situation. Worship the Lord with reverence and fear. And if you're wise, you'll do the right thing. You will serve the king. Because God requires of the nation submission. Isn't it interesting that if you listen, I found out some time ago that the, the word Islam, do you know what Islam means? Does anybody know what Islam means and its real root word? Submission, right? Submit. That's what it means. To submit. That's what's being called upon. Submission. But this is what the true God calls and demands. Submission to him and to his anointed, to his king, to his Christ. And you know what Christ means, by the way? The word Christ, the original meaning, what does Christ mean? It means, does someone say anointed too? Anointed, right? Christos means anointed. He said, he's the anointed one it's talking about here in Psalm 2. Christ, the anointed. And if they're wise, they'll respect this. They'll serve him. They'll serve the Son. Jesus said, if they do not honor me, they will not honor my Father. Him who honors me, honors my Father. It says, kiss the Son. Wow. Embrace the Son. Take hold of the Son. Submission to the King was expressed by kissing his feet. The Assyrian kings... You would submit to the king. We think of Luke chapter 7, where the woman at the house of Simon came to Jesus and did not stop kissing his feet. That was a sign of submission. That was a sign in her own way of saying, you are Lord. You are my master. And she anointed him with her tears. Kiss the son lest he be angry. It's not about, oh no, God can just flare up in a moment, it says here. It says in the NIV, his wrath can flare up at a moment. Does that mean God cannot be trusted? God's not stable? No, what it means is that this judgment can come at any time that you know not. You have no control over your future. I don't have control over my next breath. I don't have control over next week. I don't know if I'll even be alive next week. Anything can happen. We're all vulnerable. We know that. The Lord is telling us, be wise and dwell on him and embrace the Son because you could be destroyed in your way and his wrath could flare up at any time. His judgment can come at any time to the earth or to you, to the people of the world. His fury can be stirred up and he has the right. Whose throne is it anyways? So when you think about this king, remember that he's all-powerful, He's all-knowing. He's all-present. No one can stop him. No one could even attempt. It would be laughable for us. It's as laughable as Nimrod shooting the arrow into heaven to, to hit the Lord in his throne. It's as laughable for us to think that we can somehow usurp God. But the good news is this, that if you submit to him willingly, then when you hear before him, you will not hear, depart from me, you curse it into everlasting fire. But you'll hear, enter thou into the joy of my father. And you'll hear him call you friend. And you'll hear him call you brother. But the Bible says, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That doesn't mean they'll be willing. 
Many will be unwilling, but they will bend the knee. Every knee will bow. They might have to have an an angel press their shoulder or face down to the ground, but they will bow. Whether by voluntary action or by force, they will bow. And they will bend the knee. Because this is the king. This is the anointed one that's been promised for so long. And who came. But many missed him. Have you missed him? Do you know him? Do you know that lamb? Yes, he's a lamb. Yes, he's love. Yes, he is our, our joy, our beloved. And we're his beloved. But also remember, he is a king. Not to be trifled with. And when he appears the second time, the people of the earth say, Please let the rocks and the hills fall on us. Spare us from the wrath of, the, of God and of the Lamb. Isn't it ironic? The Lamb has wrath. That gentle Lamb is full of wrath when He comes. Whose throne is it? It, it always was His throne. And if you're a believer, remember it's His throne. Try not to do and sit in wiggle room around Him. By God's grace, he, he loves us. But if you don't know him today, if you can't say surely that you don't, you're not born again. I know that sounds cliche. Have you been converted? Have you been turned? Have you, have you known him and turned to him for life? For forgiveness of sins. To, to receive the blessing of the power of his blood shed for his people. Do you know him today? Because if not, then when he comes, it, it will be sorrowful in tears and, and, and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Whose throne is it? By, God, by the grace of God, it is the king and his anointed one. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are king. We thank you that you're stable. We thank you that your son is glorious and, and without sin and holy and set apart from sinners and perfect in every way. We thank you, Lord, that you rule the universe with a, with a stable, steady, merciful hand. And that there's nothing unstable about you, Father, or about your Son, and about your kingdom. It is secure and shall always be so, and we praise you for that. Help us, Lord, to remember that you are the Lord of our life as a Christian, as a believer. Help us, Lord, not to fight you, to rebel against you, but to, to submit to you, to to come to serve you in all ways and please you as we wish to do. And Lord, for those who may not know you today, Lord, I pray your Holy Spirit has, has worked in their heart and put fear into their heart, not to, not to make them af- afraid only, but to put reverence in their heart and to make them know if, they, if they're not aware of you, Lord, to come to you in a simple, humble way and ask for mercy. And to ask for grace to save them, Lord. Because you will save them if, if they come with a true heart. Call them, Lord. Make your calling sure to them. And let them come to you, Lord, and ask you to be their Lord and submit to you from this day on. And we pray it all through Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Let us stand.